you should know that it's not just your good works that are on the table. It's all your works. It's not just the good things you can do or will do or have done. It's all of them. And if you fail once, you're out. 99.9% of obedience or righteousness is 100% failure because God requires perfection. The good news is that he not only requires it, he provides it in Jesus. Paul is saying to the Galatians, you can't do this. Don't do this. You don't want to do this. If you try to obey the law for righteousness sake and to be made right with God, in, in one way you have to obey it in all the ways. If you want to be a good person and you, at the end of your life you're planning to say to God, well, I generally did what was good, it's not going to work. You need the righteousness of Jesus. And it is enough. Verse 4. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, if you're in here and you're not a believer, admittedly, that probably doesn't mean much to you. If Paul was writing this to a modern-day atheist or a Hindu or a Buddhist, they would probably say, well, okay, like, what does your Jesus have to do with me, right? It doesn't really mean much. But Paul is writing to people who believe that by faith in Jesus is the only way they can be made right with God. He's writing to people who love Jesus. He's writing to people who have professed love for him, have committed their lives to him, have chosen to give up selfishness and pride and the things that they were seeking after before for Jesus' sake, so that, like Paul says elsewhere, I would lose everything in order to gain him. That's who he's talking to. For someone who knows that Jesus is who he says he is, for someone who loves Jesus and is counting on him to make us right with God forever and to get us into heaven with him forever, being severed from Christ, being separated from Christ, is the, is the worst prospect you can imagine. It's the worst thing that can happen for a Christian, that, that fear that maybe I'm not in him. Jesus said in the Gospels, don't fear the one who can kill the body, right? Fear the one who after the body is dead can throw your soul into hell. We fear God, and so we believe and trust in Jesus. So this, is, this has got a lot of capital. This has got a lot of clout with the Galatians. And, and Paul's pressing in here because this is where the heart of the gospel is. When he puts it this way, it's really going to affect the Galatians. And then that's the goal, right? It's going to cut to their hearts. The main point of our faith, the main point of our life, is the life and death of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's not our material prosperity. That's not everything we're hoping in. We're not hoping in our family or our friends. The main point of our faith is not our works, but the main point of our faith and how that works out in our lives is the gospel of Jesus. That's it. And I hope that what Paul is doing here would affect us as much. That when we see ways in which Jesus is taking a back seat to the things we love and that we're not trusting him the way we ought to, I hope that it would cut us to the heart as well. I hope that it would. Verse 5. For, or because... Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. He's telling them the truth. Your works will not save you. They won't count for anything because they don't originate in faith. It's faith working through love. It's not works by themselves. It's the outworking of faith. Well, okay, you might say, well, what's the difference? Okay, you've got one guy that has faith that works. Okay, 
He works because of his faith. You've got one guy that also works. He doesn't have faith, but they both get the same job done, right? They both do good things. Well, what if I told you, church, that our salvation was never based on us getting the job done? Never. Not on Genesis 1.1, not in Revelations 23. What if I told you that God decided to redeem us based on something else entirely? And then when we think about doing good things to earn his love, we're shooting the wrong target. What if I told you that living a life of true happiness was never about doing good things to base your happiness in? Look at verse 5 again. Paul gives us an order here, and I think it's really important. Verse 5, he says, through the Spirit. Okay, so not through ourselves. In other, in other uh, books and even in Galatians, Paul contrasts the spirit and the flesh, right? Things we can do on our own versus what God does in us. And this is, he's saying, a work of God. Through the Spirit, by faith. So it's a work of God. How do we receive that work? Do we receive that work by doing works with him? No. We trust in his work for us. And not on what we can do or become or accomplish. So through the Spirit... By faith, we ourselves eagerly, listen to these words, wait for the hope of righteousness. Last week, we talked about two children born to Abraham, right? We talked about Ishmael, who was born to Abraham by what Paul says, the flesh, by according to what man can do and accomplish on his own. But then there was Isaac, and Isaac was born according to what? Promise. He was born according to the promise, the promise of God. Paul says here in, in verse 5, Paul says he's trusting, he's waiting, he's hoping. What's he trusting in? The promises of God. God's promises. You don't trust, you don't wait, you don't hope that you're going to just be a better person in the future. That's not what you hope in. It doesn't work. That's not what Paul's hoping in. And if that's what your hope is in, that you will be a better version of you in the future, you should abandon ship quickly because you are going to fail yourself just like you always have. But God keeps his promises. He's the reliable one in our relationship. So we trust him. We wait for him to return and we hope in the righteousness that he says we have in Jesus now and what he's going to give us in the future. So Paul here, in describing his own salvation and he's describing all of ours uh, in, in the salvation of anyone who believes the gospel, he says it's one, a work of God. Two, that we trust him to do. Three, based on the fact that he will do what, he's, what he promised. So what's the difference then, to, to answer the question, between the two people who work and do good things, but one of them has faith and one doesn't? Well, the difference is only one of them has the promises of God. Only one of them has God promising that individual that he will accomplish in him what he can't do himself. They both get the job done, sure. They both do a good deed, but one of them is working for the Lord and one of them is doing the wrong work. Jesus was asked in John chapter 6, he was asked by a man, he said, okay, so what, what can we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus replied and said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work we, we do, church, is to continue trusting in Jesus. And we apply that in so many ways. Through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We can't be saved by good works. We won't be saved by good works. We are saved by faith. That's point number one. Number two, saved by faith in Jesus, in Jesus alone. Verse seven, you were running well. 
Who hindered you from obeying the truth? It's interesting to me that he says obeying the truth, right? Usually the truth is something that we consider, that we believe. It's something that we try to study and find out and something to be understood. But Paul is saying here that it's something to be obeyed. Now, about a month ago, maybe a month and a couple weeks, a month and a half, uh, I was told that we had a free book section in the back of the church. And as soon as I heard that, my ears started tingling, right? I started getting excited. I love books. And, uh, but to be honest with you, when I heard that, I, I kind of expected, this is what I expected to see. I expected to go back there, find some curriculum books. Okay, cool. Definitely expected to find some stuff on end times, right? Uh, and I expected to find maybe like some cassettes, Okay, that's kind of what I expected to find out there. And I did. I did find all those things. Um, but what else I found was an entire commentary set, which I was like, that's mine. I found about 30 books by John MacArthur for me, right? But I also found the five-volume set of a man named Francis Schaeffer. Has anyone ever heard of Francis Schaeffer? Yeah? Got some, wow. You guys like him. I love it. Um, he, was a, he was a Christian philosopher, theologian. He was a pastor. And uh, he, uh, he published a book in the 70s, and it was called How Should We Then Live? And this book made waves, okay? It really upset a lot of people. Christians loved this book. They cherished it. Uh, it was a very philosophical book, but it really made waves because what he did is he argued against a lot of philosophies and ideas that are popular that he showed actually led to the terrible things that humans have done to each other. And that was obviously not very, not very nice to read for people who don't, uh, don't agree with him. And, uh, and we know this to be true from how the Bible talks about out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And people do evil things and bad things, not because they were coerced or the devil made me do it, but because our hearts are evil. When we are gripped by sin, we end up sinning more. But when we're gripped by the love of God and the gospel of Jesus, we do things more and more like him. What we are, he argued, Francis did, and I agree, what we are eventually becomes, one degree at a time, what we do. So Paul says, who's stopping you from obeying the truth? Who's confusing you about who you are and how then you should live? Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. He's saying this isn't from God. Remember in chapter 1, he says that, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ. Him who called you, that's, that's God. He's saying this isn't from God. This isn't from him who called you. And a good way to discover if a teacher or a preacher's message, generally speaking, is true, is to weigh it with what God has said, right? I hope you guys are being like the Bereans in the book of Acts that are taking what I'm preaching and weighing it against Scripture. I hope you're seeing these things in Scripture and you can tell me when I'm wrong, and we can talk about it, uh, but when, when we see these things in the Bible, we gain great faith. And I hope that we're doing that because God has spoken. And all the things that, that we know are from him, we can see in his word. So if come, someone comes to you, let me apply this, this happens every once in a while, you've probably heard of. Someone comes to you and says, hey, the world's going to end on this date, right? We've had those guys. It's going to end on this date, at this time, that's when it's over. You can say, well, no. Because Jesus said that no one knows the date or time, so the only thing we can be certain about is that it's not that day. Because you believe it is, and you, you can't. So, if someone comes to you and says you need to start doing a secret religious thing, or joining a special organization, or going on a special spiritual journey, you can say, look, the Bible teaches all I need is the Word of God and the people of God to apply it with. He says, I've got all I need for life and godliness. If someone comes to you and, and says that they have a special word from the Lord, and it 
contradicts or confuses what God has said in the Bible, you can say, no, that's, that's, that's not from God. I'm certain of it. And church, when you wake up in the morning and when you feel like you have to earn God's love again, you should know that's not from him because he says, that's not how you earn my love. You can earn my love. Jesus has. So trust. Trust him. God called you in the grace of Christ. Verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So here's a metaphor for us. Just like leaven in bread spreads until all the bread is leavened, so does sin and false teaching and corruption spread when it goes unchecked. He's saying, I see this among you. Cut it out before it spreads any further. In church, when you see sin and selfishness and bitterness and things like that crop up in your heart, tear it out before it begins to spread because it will. Get rid of it before its grip gets tighter. When you see a friend begin to believe things that are in opposition to what God says about them and about himself, pull them back from the fire. Help them see the truth because it will spread, it will grow. And accepting a small lie about yourself or about God today can eventually ruin your brother or sister and it can ruin you in the future. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them would be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, right? And the, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it didn't fall because it was built on the rock. But he said that for those who don't, who do hear my words, but don't do what I've said, it would be like a foolish man who built his house on where? The sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. It took a thousand years to build Rome, but it fell in a day. So be careful, church, be careful. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So he's confident that the Galatian church will return to the truth of the gospel, that they will eventually take no other view than the one he's talked about. And I find that interesting because at this point, my confidence is not high. I think they're going off into Judaism pretty quick. And it's surprising to me that he says that I'm confident you'll take no other view because I'm not confident in the Galatians. And, but you know what? I, I don't think his confidence is there either, really. Who does he say his confidence is in? The Lord. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. It's not the Galatians. No, his confidence isn't in the maturity of the Galatian church. It's not, his confidence isn't in the power of his preaching or in the evidence that even the Galatians have believed the gospel. It's, it's confidence is in the intentions of God to always do what's best and to always accomplish what he promised. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. God's commitment to his people is what gives Paul the confidence to keep preaching and keep teaching and keep labor, laboring even for the sheep that start walking away. And church, I don't, I don't preach every Sunday thinking that I'm going to change you. I don't. I have hard enough time changing myself. But my confidence for myself, my confidence for this church, is not in our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try to do the work that God says He'll do in us. My confidence is in Him. It's in Him to accomplish in us what He promised. And all we have to do, brothers and sisters, all we have to do is to, through the Spirit, 
by hoping in God's promises, love one another, grow in our love for Jesus, and grow in our obedience to him and what he has called us to do. Because church, when we live by faith, our confidence isn't in ourselves, it's in him. We want the church to grow. Let's start living and loving like we're called to. We want to see discipleship happen. Let's start discipling individually and together. We want to see people come to faith in the same Jesus who promises salvation for us. Let's tell people about him. We want the truth of the Bible to be evident in our lives. Let's read it again. We want to be blessed. Let's submit to the way God says we receive blessings. I love how last week, Pastor Jeff, in his prayer, he mentioned that we receive so many of God's blessings when we walk in obedience and we miss so many of them when we don't. Jesus is going to build his church and if we want Grass Valley Baptist Church to be part of the, the ultimate church that he's building, then let's trust in him. Let's grow in our love for him. Let's walk in obedience to Jesus and put all our confidence on his promises because he keeps them. Trust and obey, right? There's no other way to grow. There's no other way to evangelize. There's no other way to disciple. And there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Well, first of all, that's graphic. Right? I mean, I see the connection with circumcision. He's saying just go the full measure. Paul simply has no more time for these false teachers. They're ruining the church. They're breaking down the faith of some people. He has no time for these people who are teaching the Galatians that they need to live like Jews when they're Christians. That they need to trust in works and not faith. And he's proving here that he doesn't preach what those guys preached, right? If he did, he wouldn't be the object of their attacks. They would be on the same team. But as it is, he preaches that the gospel is that we are saved by faith and faith in Jesus alone. And quite frankly, that's offensive. It's always been offensive. The gospel of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus has always been offensive. I mean, we're saying that our hero, Jesus, did not overcome the world by force. He didn't take over anything on the world. But he died like a slave. That's offensive to the Jewish people. They wanted a conquering king. They just need to wait a little longer. And we're also saying that by faith in him is the only way someone can go to heaven? That's offensive to everybody else. How dare we, right? But it's true. If you've got friends or family or, or maybe you yourself are the kind of person that's thinking, how dare you say that I have to believe in Jesus, your Jesus, to go to heaven. How dare you say people need to believe that? I sympathize with that. I do. Because I'm human. I know how it sounds. And the only reason that I'm not waving that flag myself is because it's true. It's simply true. The reliability of the Bible, the reliability of the God that the Bible reveals is beyond any other claim to truth. We could spend months talking about the reliability of the Bible. But at the end of the day, it's simply what we know to be true. And so we have to admit that the gospel of Jesus, the exclusivity of Jesus, that it's Jesus and no one else, is offensive. There's nothing we can do about that. The only thing we can do, church, is to tear down and don't build up the unnecessary barriers that become offensive and keep people from the gospel. 
Because we have a real bad habit of putting up barriers to the gospel by the way we act and the way we talk, don't we? We really do. Paul says elsewhere that he became all things to all people so that by all means he might save some. The gospel, the cross of Jesus, the fact that we are saved by faith in him is offensive. Let's not add any unnecessary offensiveness or barriers to it. And I think I should apply that to us in some uncomfortable ways. You guys okay with that? How do you feel? All right, let's go. We share the gospel with everyone, right? Everyone. The gospel is irrespective of, of race, language. Does the Bible say it's, un, it's, an, it's that unbelief is a sin? It does, right? Unbelief is a sin. Does that mean you shouldn't have unbelieving friends? No. Nope. Some of my best friends in college disagreed with me about Jesus. And even though there's always going to be a difference between us because of faith in Christ, unless God opens their eyes, that doesn't mean I need to erect other barriers between me and them to hurt their ability to see Jesus through me, right? So have some friends who don't believe. You'll necessarily be closer to your believers uh, and your friends that are believers as you share life together because you have a shared faith, but have friends. Go to dinners. Enjoy things with people who don't yet believe. Here's another one. Does the Bible say homosexuality is a sin? Yes. Does that mean you shouldn't have any homosexual friends? No. Does the Bible say adultery is a sin? Yes. Does that mean you won't be around and share the gospel with adulterers? No. Does the Bible say getting drunk is a sin? Yeah. Does that mean you shouldn't share the gospel with and encourage people around you who struggle with that? No. No. Jesus was a friend of sinners. You know how he proved that? By wanting to be close to you and me. That's how he proved it. Sometimes I think that we fall into the trap of believing that sin in other people is going to rub off on us. So we've got to lock ourselves in our churches, lock ourselves in our homes and our friends' groups. And heaven forbid we talk to someone on an airplane, right? It's the sin inside of us that we have to worry about, church. It's the sin in our hearts. It's not the sin outside that we have to worry about. It's ours. And that's the same sin that when people come to church, they feel judged and they leave because we're a bunch of hypocrites. When we say we need to protect ourselves from you, then we're perfect. When that's not what we confess. We confess that we're sinners and we need Jesus and he's all we have. It's the sin inside that we, we worry about and we sympathize and we relate with everyone else because we're all sinners. The cross of Jesus is offensive enough because it has to be. It has to be. For someone to turn towards Christ, they have to necessarily turn from themselves. That's hard. But let us be careful that we don't put, our, put up our own offensive barriers. That what we say we believe is how we also live. We know that we're not saved by our own personal righteousness. We don't have any. We don't have any of that. We won't be changed. We won't be made new. We won't be given joy. We won't be with God forever based on our preferences, based on our income, based on our correct or incorrect gender identities, whether or not we have an NRA subscription. God doesn't love the conservative more than he loves the liberal, or the liberal more than the conservative. He loves his children. He loves his children who are saved by faith in Jesus and not by anything else in this world. The truth is, church, that you and I were much farther from Christ than we believed we were when he saved us. I grew up in church. I became a Christian at 20. That was far. 
I was far from him. I was around people who believed in him, who loved him, but I was far. So were you. But we were brought near. We were saved by God's grace and given faith in Jesus. That's point number two. Faith in Jesus and nothing else. Number three, faith, saved by faith in Jesus together. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So we're saved by faith, not works. Faith in Jesus, not, not anything else, not personal preferences or what groups we say we belong to. We are saved by faith in Jesus, not alone, not to be by ourselves, but together. Paul gives two opposing factors here. And you'll do either one or the other. He says in verse 13, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, that is for your own selfishness and sin, but through love serve one another. So you'll do either one or the other. Either you'll cater to your selfishness and sin in times, or you will through love serve one another. Those are your options. And actually, in this verse, we also see how to fight, how to fight this battle. How do we stop using our freedom in Jesus as an opportunity to pursue our own selfish gain? We serve one another in love. By doing one, you stop doing the other. And then here in verse 15, he gives us a warning. I have an entire book written on this verse, although that's probably not surprising. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Either we will serve each other in love, or we will, by pursuing selfishness and our preferences and me-ism, we will bite and devour each other until we are consumed by bitterness and pride and enmity. And if we bite and devour one another, if we as a, as a church bite and devour each other, as is common in a lot of churches, I pray that God would do the merciful thing. And he would let Grass Valley Church die so that we might learn to be Christians somewhere else. That's what's at stake. Also, the eternity of our souls. We should not bite and devour one another because that's not what Christians do. We love because we are loved. So let's take Jesus at his word. Let's remember that we are not our own, that we have been bought with a price, adopted into God's family, and that was a gift that we didn't deserve. And let us love one another because we are loved by God.